1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm reading from the New International Version. You'll see the paragraph heading here says, Living to Please God. Now, just as you're finding the place and so on, I just want to add a couple of things to the notices. First of all, just to mention, pretty obvious really, but the picnic this afternoon that has been mentioned at 4 o'clock at Robinswood Hill, it's bring your own picnic. Don't expect to turn up and find it laid out for you. It's bring your own. <laughs> but we'll have fun together. And then uh, next Sunday, the end of a holiday club, um, it's a family service. That's why this is not strictly speaking a now and then Sunday. But next Sunday is a family service in which all the parents, the boys and girls, will be invited to come. And we're looking forward to a great time. It always is a great time at the end of the holiday club when we meet together. And so it's a special opportunity to bring friends and family and people. Pardon? You've got to sign up for lunch for that. Yes, we're having a lunch afterwards. You don't have to stay to lunch, but we hope you will. And you need to sign up. And if you're bringing friends, sign them, them up too. And we'll have um, a, a great time together. So do come next Sunday for a family service, the end of our holiday club. And the boys and girls will be here. Friends and neighbors and the cat and dog are all welcome, as long as you leave them outside. But that's... Um, next Sunday. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The subject before us, as you've already heard, is looking at the rooms in our house of our life and unlocking various doors. We've been through a number of them and we've reached today the bedroom. The bedroom. I was allocated this subject. I didn't choose it. But it's the bedroom is the one that's being unlocked today for our thinking. And um, you, you know, there are lots of areas of life which it's quite easy to understand the importance of um, unlocking it to the way in which God wants us to live. And we can talk about them freely, but we don't often talk about what goes on in the bedroom. It's almost a private, almost a secret area of our lives. And we don't talk too openly about it. Even in our own homes, of course, that's true, Not let alone in church. Um, <laughs> you know, when somebody comes around, it's Sunday lunch, for example. You invite people around for lunch and so on, and uh, they say, and you say to them as they come in, come in and make yourselves at home. Just uh, make yourself at home and uh, treat it as if it's your own home, and uh, I'm just going in the kitchen to get lunch ready or whatever it might be. We all know what that means, but we'd be really surprised if they did that. If they really made it themselves at home. I mean, supposing they got up and they started rummaging through your drawers. And uh, they might take an odd book down from the bookshelf to look at. That's a different matter. But supposing you'd come back from getting a lunch ready and you found them in bed, in your bed, <laughs> in the bedroom. Why is that strange? It's because that is really a private area. You said make yourself at home, but you didn't really mean it. It's a private area. We don't talk too much about it. Now, the bedroom itself, of course, is used for all sorts of reasons. Sleeping is one of them. For most people, anyway. Sleeping in the bedroom. Getting dressed is another area, um, and so on. When we're sick, we lie in bed in the bedroom, usually. Sometimes, especially if you're a teenager, it's sometimes a place to get away from everybody, where you just want to be away and have your own space, so you go to your bedroom and so on. 
But it is also the room where sexual activity takes place. And it's that particular area that has been allocated to us to think about today under the title, Sex, God's Good Gift. But I do just want to comment on sleep because that's what the bedroom is used for as well, sleep. It's interesting that the Bible has so much to say about rest. The Sabbath day, one day in seven, it's a day of rest. One year in seven in the land was to be a, give the land rest. The year of jubilee and so on. Heaven itself is spoken of as our Sabbath rest. God takes rest seriously. And so should we. And the Bible gives us quite a lot of in instructions on that. That it's important that we have adequate rest and it may be, even for some of us, that's one of the areas of unlocking that door that we should think about. But the subject allocated to us today is sex, God's good gift, the bedroom. So we're going to focus there. And it is an area that we need to unlock and look at as much as any other area. Now, it is a very big subject, and I won't be able to cover all the different aspects. For example, that it would be worthwhile and important to talk about sex and, and their children, about seniors, about single people, and so on. We recognize there are different areas of it, but I want to talk, the main area today is what the Bible says about our sexual activity in the bedroom or anywhere else for that matter. There are many passages in the Bible that talk about sex. Genesis 2, we're going to look at that in a minute. Leviticus 18, 2 Samuel 13, which is the story of rape. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, we'll come to that too. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Thessalonians 4 that we have open in front of us, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 7, and that's missing out dozens of other passages. Whole books like the book of Song, Song of Solomon is also about it and so on. When I was a young man, nobody taught about sex in church. I mean, it was never mentioned in church. It's almost as if we were hermaphrodites, you know, and nobody ever mentioned sex in church at all. It was just not a polite thing to do. The word was never used almost in church. But the Bible does confront this subject openly, frankly, and honestly for us. And it teaches us about this subject, that we things that we need to understand. And not only understand, the practice of sex, too, is talked about in the Bible. How to handle our sexuality. How past generations could miss that in the teaching of Scripture, I do not know. Paul himself not only wrote on this subject, but obviously taught on it to the churches. Now let's read from 1 Thessalonians 4, the first few verses. This is only one aspect. We're coming to other aspects in a minute. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should av avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in the way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathens who do not know God. And in, that in, in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. 
the Lord will punish men for such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So here's Paul saying something about one aspect of our sexual activity and the importance of keeping it pure. It's the theme of this, this particular passage. Paul obviously spoke about it. Maybe he ran courses on it. I don't know. We're not told, but he obviously talked about it because he said, he says here, as we have instructed you. And verse 2, for you know the instructions we gave you. And by the way, he's writing to the Thessalonians, and he was only in Thessalonica three weeks. But he still spoke and talked on this particular subject. Uh, maybe he had many other things and many other means of teaching them, but he certainly taught on this particular subject. Uh, of course, how you teach on it is interesting. A few years back, well, it's more than just a few now, we used to run every year family days. Some of them were at Pershaw College of Horticulture, but we hired it for the place and, and ran college, uh, courses um, and, and uh, training days and family days and fun days and so on there. And uh, the committee, which I happened to, to lead, but the committee asked me if I would speak on the subject of sex at one of the sessions. And I agreed to do that, and it came out in the publicity, Sex with Roger Chilvers. <laughs> so, but... <laughs> It was packed. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. <laughs> but I'm not sure that I've spoken very much on the subject ever since. Because it isn't spoken on very much indeed, though it ought to be. Paul says, we instructed you, we kn you know the instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. He evidently, systematically taught on this particular subject. And in doing this, Paul was concerned about the wider area of teaching of how we please God. In fact, it's how we ought to please God, verse 1. If you've got different versions, the wording is not quite the same, but the word ought to please God comes in there, even though it isn't in the New International Version. How one ought to please God. That's the one number one issue, even in our sexuality and the practice of sex, how we ought to please God. Now, the word ought in English is um, the merging of two little words. The two little words are owe it, how we owe it, ought to please God. We owe it to God to please him even in this particular area. Why does it matter how I handle my sex life? After all, some people say, well, it's my body, I can do what I like with it. I can do what I want to as long as I don't harm anybody. There's no, as long as there's consent, that's okay. Sex is beautiful, sex is fun, sex is to be enjoyed, sex is natural. I can do what I like. Why did God make me like this if he didn't want me to find expression in my sex life? And so on and so on. People talk like that. Well, the answer to that is that little word, ought. We live in a certain way as believers, as Christians, even in our sexual life, because we owe it. We ought to please God. And by the way, the word ought is a verb. It means it's something to put into practice. It is not just a part of our philosophical understanding. 
well, yes, this is what we believe about our sexual life. No, it's something to do as well. How we put it actually into practice. How you act upon it. And Paul finishes this little section that we've just read in verse 8 by saying, if you reject this action, you reject God. Sometimes we hear people say, well, I was brought up in a very repressed background. They wouldn't let me do anything. My church frowned upon anything to do with sex. My parents were terrible and so on. Now, of course, there are situations where circumstances where overbearing parents or maybe an overbearing church has caused damage, caused damage in a person's life. But on this, person, on this issue, Paul says, no, you've got it wrong. It's not me telling you this. It's not my teaching that you're rejecting if you reject this teaching. You're rejecting not man, but you're rejecting God if you overthrow this teaching. And one final comment on that. At the end of verse 8 it says, verse 8 says, Therefore he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, comma, who gives us his Holy Spirit. Why did Paul add that last bit? Who gives us his Holy Spirit. Why didn't he finish it with the word God? So it says, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, full stop. Why did he add the bit about the Holy Spirit? Well, I can think of at least two reasons why. It's Paul's conviction that even in this area of our sexuality, the Holy Spirit is involved. Have you ever thought of the Holy Spirit being involved in your sex life? He is. That's what Paul is saying. Perhaps he includes it for at least two reasons. There are probably lots of others, but I thought of two particular reasons. One is, of course, because in his day, as in our day, the sexual pressures on people were enormous. Perhaps more so then than today. How can anybody, they might have thought, withstand the pressures to live promiscuously, you know, promiscuously and, and uh, free sex? How can anybody resist that in the culture in which they lived? Or today, sex today is used to sell everything. And even then, as today, the law backed up all of that. Is it realistic, therefore? Is it possible to withstand the pressures? And Paul says, yes, because you have the Holy Spirit. If you reject my teaching, reject not just man, but God, after all, you have the Holy Spirit. That's, how, that's the sense of what he's saying here. The Spirit who, elsewhere, he says, this is the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. That's the sort of power the Holy Spirit has. Is he not sufficient? For a man to control his body in a way that is honourable and holy, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. That's verse 5. And the answer is, yes, of course he has the power. So he may have used it for that reason. But he also may have added this little phrase about the Holy Spirit because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks about the most um, crude, and basic level of sexual involvement. That is of a man and a prostitute. Where a man has hired a woman for sex. Highly likely in the New Testament days. And highly possible and likely even today. And he asks the question in, in 1 Corinthians 6, why not? Why shouldn't you? And the answer is, 
because the Holy Spirit who lives in you. How can you do that if your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Is what he's saying. Don't you know that the Holy Spirit lives in you? How can anybody go to a prostitute knowing that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So why ought we to live to please God? Because we owe it to him. We do not own our own bodies. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20. We live for him who loved him and gave himself for us. We are not our own, therefore we owe it to him to please God even in this area of our life. Now before we leave 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, notice one other thing. Paul says in verse 1, Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. More and more. Have you noticed that before? Do it more and more. In other words, Paul is conscious that there is progress to be made even in this area. Even in this area. We control ourselves. We seek to please God even in this area and we should please him more and more. There's progress to be made. And perhaps today, when we're putting our hand on the door of the bedroom and opening it, it's that area that we need to look at. There's more and more and more progress. It isn't the case of switching a light and saying, oh, I understand it all now. There's progress day by day to be made in this particular area. As I said, Paul had only been three weeks. You can read about it in Acts 17, three weeks in Thessalonica. And the cultural background of the Thess Thessalonians, being a Greek part of the world was complete liberty, complete freedom in this area. Free sex, do what you like, please yourself in your sex lives. Demosthenes, the philosopher who laid down much of the teaching on which Greek culture grew, just before, a couple of centuries before, but on which the whole of the Greek culture in New Testament times was based, he said this on one occasion, we keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body. We keep wives for the begetting of children and for faith, a faithful guardianship of our homes. That was the attitude. In the Roman culture, you know, they used to measure time in the Roman culture, in uh, everyday time, everyday conversation, by the governors. So you get things like, in the second year of the reign of Quirinius, dot, dot, dot happened. And of course the Jews did the same. You can read about it in the Bible. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6 verse, says. Uh, uh, verse, six, uh, verse 1 says. But here, in the Greek culture, it was said of women, fashionable women, in that Greek culture of New Testament days, that they often kept time by the names of their husbands because they had so many. Well, that was in the second year of James, yes. That's when that happened. They had so many. Seneca, the Roman teacher and philosopher and crazy man, said women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. That was what it was like. So the atmosphere it, that they were in, it, well, it's not surprising. With, with just three weeks of teaching, Paul had to tell them, look, there's a lot more that you need to learn in this area. 
You should be learning this more and more every day. And it reminds us here in Abbey this morning, yes, we may have failed in this area, but there's a daily walk to fulfill God's promises because we owe it to him. We should be making progress even in this particular area. Now with that in mind, turn back to Genesis, the passage that's actually in the bulletin, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It's on page 4 in the church Bibles. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Spend the rest of our time here. This is what it says. It comes at the end of the creation story given to us. And it says this, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He 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 had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Several things to notice here. First of all, the relationship between the man and the woman, the husband, the wife here, including their sexual activity, is not first and foremost to produce children even their sexual activity. I mean, I I think here at Abbey this morning, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think most of us here know that children come from sexual activity. We know that. But you know, that's not the first reason for sex. Uh, You probably heard the story about the little child, Mikey, who was at school in his primary school, the end of his primary school years, and he was asked to do an essay on my family. And uh, start at the beginning, where I came from, the teacher said. And so he went home and preparing for it, and he said to his mum, Mum, can you tell me where I came from? She thought it was a bit, a bit, felt a bit awkward about it, but she didn't want to mislead him. So she said, well, she said, I, I went to hospital, and I told the doctor we wanted to have a baby, and I came home with you. And he said, oh. And then he went to his grandmother and he said, Grandma, where did mummy come from? And she was even more embarrassed being of a previous generation. She said, well, no, she came, she was brought by a stork. (laughs) So he went to his great-grandmother and said, great-grandma, where did a grandma come from? And she was even more embarrassed to talk about it. She said, well, we found her under a gooseberry bush. So he went back to school the next day to write his little essay and he started by saying, in our family, there have been no natural births for at least four generations. <laughs> I, I think we know that children come from sexual activity. Children are one of the products of sex. But it's actually not the only one. 
It's not the only product of sex. In fact, it's not the first product of sex. In the story of the creation in these chapters, every time God made a different category, species, and so on, he said God saw that he made that, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. They made man, he said, it's very good. But then the first negative thing is introduced in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Not good. So the not good part of it was introduced, that God, God saw it, it was not good for man to be alone. And Adam had prior to that been given the task of naming the animals. I know it comes the other way around in the, in the verses. Uh, verse 18 comes before verses uh, 19 and 20 and so on. But it says he had named them. God brought the animals to Adam for Adam to name all the animals. And in Hebrew understanding, of course, naming was not just coming up with a, a title, a name. It was examining. It was looking carefully at. It was evaluating these animals and giving them a name that was suitable to their character and who they were and so on. So whether he called them lion or bear or Tyrannosaurus Rex or whatever they, I don't know which animals were around in Noah's day, in uh, Adam's day, but, but uh, he, it, the name describes and is expression of the person, the animal itself. He would consider and examine. But in verse 18 it says that having been through all of that, he found no suitable helper. He looked carefully, but there was no suitable helper for him amongst the animals. And so God made woman. And we have this description given to us, how God made woman. Now notice three things about it. First of all, no animal was suitable, that's the word that you use, suitable for Adam. No animal. Of course, speaking at the most crude level, I suppose some sex is possible with animals, but it was not suitable for Adam, is what's being said. Many people have pets and sometimes are passionate about their pets, their dogs, their horses, their hamsters and so on. I mean, Caligula married his horse, so it is said anyway, but he probably only married his horse so that he could make him into a priest and a um, consul. But anyway, we do know people that do crazy things. But as far as God is concerned, as far as Adam is concerned, no suitable helper was found amongst the animals. Secondly, God didn't make another man. Because what was needed was not another man to be a suitable helper for Adam, but a woman. Somebody who is different yet complementary. He made woman. And when he brought woman to man, Adam said, well, it's not very good in English because we can't really easily translate it, but it, it's more as yippee. It's almost at that level. He says, now at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is it. He found her at last. Didn't make another man, didn't make an animal. He made a woman to be a suitable helper. And then notice, too, that the relationship was to be at the exclusion of all others. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be glued to, united to, stuck to his wife. 
So it's not an, a man, not an animal, not another man, but a woman, to the exclusion of all others. Now why? Well, firstly, because an appropriate, suitable, just the right person to relate to the man emotionally at every level, to fulfill that it is not good for man to be alone, God said it's a woman he needs. Matthew Henry, in his commentary from some long while ago, put it like this. When God took the rib from Adam and made the woman, he said this. He, she was made not out of his head to rule over her, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, not out of his side, uh, uh, he would, sorry, let me start again, made not out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon, upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, near his heart to be beloved by him. That's what God says is a suitable helper. Second thing notice is, in being that person at the exclusion of all others, the expression of that relationship is sex. Verse 24. It says, they will become one flesh. Euphemism, of course, for sex. What is it that's expressed in sex? Well, it's the need for intimacy, closeness, companionship, to answer or to overcome the issue of the not-good-to-be-alone issue. Now notice, at this point, no children are mentioned. They haven't been mentioned at all. Sexual relationships is not just to produce children, in other words. Though, of course, it does produce children. So marriage is to be monogamous, heterosexual, and permanent. Now, the last thing we need to consider today is, and we'll expand on this just a little bit as we finish, what does this all mean if I open the door of my bedroom in, my, in the house of my life? A few things to mention. First of all, remember there's nothing unwholesome or secretive about sexual relationships. It's private, yes, but not unwholesome or secretive in that sense. Sex is God's idea to meet our needs. It is good as far as God is concerned. It meets the not good aspects of our life. We should thank God for it, rejoice in it, delight in it. We still say in the marriage service, if you use the, the Anglican version of the marriage service, and uh, other versions carry it sometimes, with my body I thee worship, which is an expression of it. That's surely what Genesis 2 verse 25 means when it says the man and his wife were both naked and they, had no sh they felt no shame. They were open with each other. No shame about it at all. Nothing unwholesome. Secondly, the relationship is rightly express, expressed in different ways, but those ways include sex. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that a man's body is not his own, but he is to please her. And she is, her body is not her own. She is to please him. 1 Corinthians 7, 4 and 5. 
And he also said, by the way, in that passage, do not deprive one another. He's talking about sexual activity. Do not deprive one another, except for a time by mutual consent, and then come together. Thirdly, it's an, ex an exclusive relationship. It excludes all others. That means it, it excludes all others to which our minds can easily go. Whether in daydreaming, whether in things like pornography, a big issue today, of course, mind games. Paul, speaking about this in Ephesians 5, says, let no one deceive you in these areas. Don't let anybody tell you, well, it's okay, we might say today. Don't let people deceive you in this. God has his plans and purposes. It's an exclusive relationship, even in our minds. Fourthly, it's a loving relationship. It's not, not to be governed and controlled by demands. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And just as Jesus denied himself his rights and came to this earth for us, gave up everything for us. Philippians 2 verse 6 talks about it. In just the same way, husbands, must deny their rights, and sometimes the, the wife must deny her rights to fulfill God's purposes too. And then fifthly, in this area, as in every other area, we are all failures. We're all failures. It may mean that apologies are appropriate in this area as we open the door again to the work of the Holy Spirit, even in the area of our sexuality. We are all failures. The fact is that we all know that we're weak. None of us have the right to say, well, I get it right all the time, or make demands. We all fail. And neither can we say, well, we all fail, I can't help it. Remember Paul's words in Thessalonians that we read together, I urge you to heed my instructions more and more. In other words, together, learn. Together, make progress, more and more, not less and less. So today in this area, in our husband and wife relationships, in our sexuality, we need to place our hand on the door, open the door in different ways according to our needs, and open it to God himself and to the work of the Holy Spirit. I've got five areas. I'm just going to mention a one sentence as a prayer for each of them. Number one, Lord, help me not to treat your good gift of sex as unclean or less than wholesome. Number two, Lord, help me to remember that my wife, my husband, has legitimate needs and rights for this expression of love and for restraint in this area too. Number three, Lord, forgive me when my mind strays and the pressures of this world impact in a way that I know they should not. And please help me in the future. Number four, 
Lord, help me to be loving and caring, putting my wife, my husband's needs above my own, just as you did, Lord Jesus. And number five, Lord, today I confess my failures. Help me from this day to open this do door to you more and more, knowing that this is an honorable example and demonstration of Christ's love for his church. We pray these things in Jesus' name.